0: We need communities to be self-sustaining and have its own ecosystems. And I actually think that COVID and new technology has brought us back to those old terms, right? So you talk about when you're talking about making America great, it's because that people were able to like we we also have the analogy of you know pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Well, inside of a community, you have all the you have access to all of those things. It's when you feel like you have to go outside the community to get those things met.
1: This is Joseph Ring. I'm a cattle feedlot operator in Northern Illinois, and you're listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. C. Nelson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So you are a uh, developer here in St. Louis. You live in the same area that my buddy Ben, who uh, bought a house um, for, I think, $10,000 because it was... uh, you know, dilapidated and worn down, and now he has built it into a home. And uh, But there's not very many people out in this part of the world. What makes you decide that you want to build out in such a dilapidated part of St. Louis?
0: Oh, man. So uh, I guess I have to start with uh, my career. So I'm a social worker by trade. Um, and when I was getting my uh, master's degree over at Washington University here in St. Louis, uh, one of the things that I recognized was uh, – we were putting Band-Aids on bullet wounds across different services and the 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 services that were provided for individuals and families and youth is where I really kind of focused my tenure on prior to uh, grad school. So uh, coming out of that piece, I was like, these communities need way more than the resources that we're providing them. They need a full-on approach to an ecosystem. Uh, From there, I uh, started looking at, buying homes in low income areas. Turned into me being an acquisitions manager for a syndication and recognizing, hey, we can really do have a greater impact if we afford them quality housing. So statistics number I'm a research guy. So statistics says that if you like where you live, whether it be your community and neighborhood, your morale automatically goes up and you have a better outcome on life. So I was like, if we just focus on the housing piece and people always need somewhere to stay, that's not that's not a resource. That's a basic need. Then we're going to automatically help change and shift lives, Uh, which brought which at about three years in uh we had to, an opportunity to come through our neighborhood where a group of developers wanted to come into our neighborhood i had been in the neighborhood for the longest never wanted to move i always had pride in our community um and they had already had an assembled team a group of people that were doing the work uh your friend ben now my friend also was on was one of the members on that team we just kind of that a natural mesh and uh, been kind of flourishing, doing the work together along with some of the other people on that team to try to change tra- transition that neighborhood, right? You know, in the real estate terms, they call them war zones. Uh, in the community development terms, we call it transitioning neighborhoods. So we're trying to make sure we dive on in and hit all those components from a community development standpoint so people can enjoy where they stay and get their basic needs met right where they live.
1: So. W- why social work? That seems like a, a weird thing for a guy that's like, I want to get in and do houses and develop things.
0: Actually, it fell in my lap. It had nothing to do with, you know, and I, think, and I think that's just life, right? You have to think of the natural migration of life. Um, I was a finance guy. I was going to school to do finance, uh, supply chain more specifically, and um, I took a job over the summer at a children's youth camp. I fell in love. I literally came out of this summer summer job and said, I'm doing something with youth. Talked to a couple of my mentors, and there was either going to be counseling or social work. Found out I could I had a wider range of motion in social work, so I chose that. Naturally, it took me back to something having to do with with uh, you know be more lucrative and in, in being real estate, but I could also help people in the process. You know,
1: I uh, actually worked at a camp for inner city kids um, when I was coming. I actually did it in high school, and then I did it again right after college. And that was a life-changing experience for me because doing it as a high school kid, you're just trying to be the cool counselor, right? You just want to be the one that's well-liked. I was a lifeguard, you know. But then when you're uh, when I was coming out of college, I was like, wait, these kids will one day grow up, right? And, like, you're experiencing kids – that have a totally different way of interacting with one another, with adults or, you know, like the authority figures than anything I had ever seen. And I, that, that, like, had a profound influence on me.
0: No, definitely, right? And so I think that was kind of uh, where I was at, right? Um, so I was uh, halfway through my, I, I was actually just diving into my concentration into undergrad. And uh, I was halfway through school, not and in, and, i was good at the financial classes i was good at you know all the the micro macroeconomics but it just didn't, it, it wasn't something I really enjoyed. I just run through the work, get, get a good grade and on to the next course, looking for the internship. Um, part of, and I went to a Jesuit university, so we had to do some volunteer work. And so for me to hit my hours, I was like, you know, let me be some, I'm gonna knock them all out in one time over the summer. And that's how I ended up falling in love with the, you know, doing something in the local community, worked at the summer camp. They always needed additional hands on deck at the, at, you know, the rec center and I, it just, it for some reason I left there happier than any dollar amount I had ever made previous to that part. And I said, this must be it. So I, I went you know when I called some of my old friends and I was like, yo, I think I might be going to social work, do some stuff with some kids. It was funny. One of my childhood friends said, well, I could have told you that he's like, you know, we used to call you the counselor in high school. So it was just, it was like, you know, it's, it's funny how those natural progressions always brings you back around full circle later on in life. And I think that's what happened for me.
1: Um, you know what I saw when I was there was, uh, kids would go from like happy playing great time laughter to instantaneous it would seem almost uh that they would get into a fight or they would be ready to throw down like on the scale that if when i was a kid you would would see this progression lead up and it would maybe only happen once a month, maybe once every two months. But this was happening like multiple times a day. And one of the conclusions I came to, but I'd be very interested in hearing your perspective on this is a lot of those kids didn't have the language to describe different emotions they were feeling, right? So they had, I'm angry. They had, I'm embarrassed, right? And they maybe didn't even know the word embarrassed, but they would feel that, right? So they were feeling this range of emotions, but they only had, instead of having a dial where they could change it or check, check different dials at the same time, it was very clunky. It was happy, angry, happy, embarrassed. And that that seemed to me to be something that, uh, I don't know how you resolve it, but it seemed something to do with language.
0: No, definitely. I think it's even more deeper than language, right? Because at the end of the day, Um, what you're talking about is a spectrum of emotions, right? And so they can only go from one end to the opposite end. And what I've at least recognized in, in my work that I've done thus far is the ones who can best describe in the middle. So some of those, like I'm embarrassed, but or I'm ashamed, and nobody is nobody is helping me with that piece. And now that that matures and manifests into anger, after so much shame is put upon me, um, that there's been no one to to come and intervene in the process of that. And then also you have to look at you know what environment are they growing up in, because if they haven't if they haven't been in an environment where that's been taught to them, and not taught just you know as the do as I say, not as I do, but something that can actually experience emotional intelligence. because let's be honest, how many adults have a problem with telling you know their counterparts, whether it be at home in their regular life or at the work life?, um, I don't feel, this doesn't feel good. You know, we're taught we have to bite the bullet and take it as it comes. And that's, you know, it's a bunch of bull. Like, we don't necessarily have to do that. You know, our feelings are real. Our emotions are real. And we should be able to do so. And if young kids don't know how to do that because the the adults that are training and raising them haven't instilled that in them, then I would expect for them to just go from one end of the spectrum to the next. Uh, We have, and and again, it, you know, I always hear the term that it falls on. It starts at home. Well, it does start at home, but your home is inside of a community. Your school is inside of a community. And, you know, I tell people all the time for 10 months, more, for 10 months of, of every year, this outside people outside of the home, adults outside of the home are, are responsible for those kids more than the parents are. You're at home, you're at school 10 hours a day, then the school year, you're at home and actually up working probably six. So the majority of that responsibility, it sucks. And I and I tell my educators this that I work with all the time, that you were given a responsibility um, to help in, instill values in these kids when all you were taught in college was how to teach them arithmetic or reading and language. But now you have to teach them emotional regulation or how to defuse conflict. Um, that wasn't, that's not something in the requirement requirements for an educator, right? But it's, it is it's something that you have to do to be successful as an educator. What kind of home did you grow up in? Uh, I grew up in a home full of two, two educators. So, both my parents were educators. Um, also, uh, we had a very close knit family. So, I was very close to my grandparents. Um, my grandfather was actually the first black supervisor at McDonnell Douglas, which is now Boyne, um, forming on the, one of the construction floors. Uh, my grandmother actually worked in the plant um, as well. Uh, So I I grew up in a very close-knit family, like I said. So they had a small family and we all lived literally within that same community. It's probably why I never left that community because all my basic needs were met and my entire family is in that community.
1: Yeah, there's something I I used to say, like uh, when I moved to California, I've I made this realization that uh, everybody thinks they're moving to California to get away from all the people that they can't get along with right <laughs> And so what you have out in a place like that like um, you know San Francisco is a bunch of individualists right yeah. but if you stay in a place like, st louis or i make the comparison like south orange new jersey right if you stay in one of these towns you don't stay there because it's beautiful you stay there because you're knitted into the community you have you know you're a part of that fabric and uh it's one of those things that to uh to leave it would be i mean it would cost you way no, no matter how i'm like you would have to make so much more money to be able to offset the loss of the you know, family to watch your kids, and you know, connection into other opportunities, whatever that is. It's it's almost probably impossible to
0: imagine. No, definitely, and it's funny because uh being a social worker, people always want to lean on me for emotional and life advice. Um, and and one of the things I always I always encourage people. I always say, you know, go spread your wings, enjoy life. You know, go do some self journeys, figure out what you want to do if you haven't figured it out for yourself. But when people say I have to move, the first question is, what are you moving for? Because if you're moving to get away and to reinvent yourself. I'm sorry, but in the world we live in today, your your reputation is going to follow you, and if you're moving before your own internal demons, um, those are going to go with you no matter what. So, it's one of those
1: questions, though. Like you look at a dilapidated place, like let's imagine East St. Louis, right? mm -hmm. And you you say, like, what? Hey, people that are here, there's no jobs here. The in the community that you're in seems quite run down. Uh, To me, the obvious answer is to move. But then you kind of run into, like, are are they moving out of social situations that are holding them back or are they leaving? I, I don't understand what the right question is, but, like, it seems like there's some places where the right answer does seem to be to leave.
0: Well, I, I think that's a personal question, right? And so you have to see what is what is it that's happened to you in that situation that you would have to go. Um, but at the same time, is there, if there are situations that, that have created a if the, there's a situation that that's at a place where people don't have the opportunity to flourish and opportunities to grow then yeah you want to leave but most people don't from my experiences haven't haven't had the um, bandwidth or instill the skills to really utilize what's around them. So yeah, you look at a place like East St. Louis and you're like, hey, this is run down. There's not that many opportunities. Well when I look at a place at like East St. Louis, I say, man, they could really, really use a fresh produce, uh, you know, convenience store. They could really, really use um, a place that, that, that has non perishable goods and meets their basic needs because they have to travel you know 10 miles to the nearest Walmart to get so. However, only 12% of the population have a functioning, a functioning vehicle. And public transit in East St. Louis is almost non-existent outside of the Metrolink line, which could be an additional two miles to walk to. So let's think in the midst of the winter, and it's zero degrees, you know, Granny G can't go to get those basic needs met. So yeah, it may make more sense for Granny G to move out to, you know, a more con- a more uh, condensed uh, area of, of I- Illinois or even in uh, the metro area so she can get those basic needs met from a retirement facility. But she look at what she's given up. She's given up that home. No matter what the neighborhood is, she's given up that home that she worked to pay off this mortgage over the last 30 years. She's given up the relationships that she has built in the community. She's given up that hierarchy that she created um, inside of that neighborhood. Everybody, you know, we all have that elderly person in our communities that we know, that we check on and we recognize and actually uh,
1: see- I don't think you're right about that. In fact, I think uh, in my world, like, I don't look in on any uh, you know older people I, like I don't I, I I think that's something that's a part of you and a part of your culture but I think in uh suburban suburban culture I don't I don't think it's the same.
0: I don't. I don't think it's the same either. I mean, I remember getting this question from a. Fr- I remember actually getting a comment from a friend in high school, and he and he was saying, you know, he li- he lives in a prominent area, and he's like, you know, Chauncey can't wait for all of us to come out here and get these get a house out here. And I was my my response was, I don't want to live out here because there is no sense of community. You know, houses are put on one acre lots. Where, on and where in the community that me and Ben work in, they're put on quarter acre lots, and we're all close together. I think we just saw this out, out of COVID. You know. When COVID just happened, um, I was able to reconnect with neighbors I probably hadn't had a real relationship with since I was younger. But, again, thats it, it you're right. It is my truth. And, and at the end of the day, there is, but there's a cluster of people that, Are looking for that that type of connection inside of their community. I think that is why we're seeing herbal renewal be such a big topic across the country. You know, we see plenty of cities that's made a turnaround over the last over the last ten years. I would like to put up on the block. You know, uh, Denver's probably been one of the biggest ones. You know, we've seen the flood of population out there. Of course, with you know with the regulation of cannabis um, being uh, put being put in place, you've seen a boom in economic uh, divide. But at the same time, you've also Seen different cities too, you know, Atlanta, uh, Dallas, DC, steady turning. Um, you know, we're seeing it in Florida cities as well, Tampa, F- uh, Fort Lauderdale. These are all cities, I mean, since Midwest cities, Cincinnati, Cleveland, um, you know, Chicago on the south side that's seen plenty of disinvestment and is now making huge turns. You're seeing the real estate market go up 300% in the last four years. That's all speaking to people wanting to have that personal connection inside of their community. If not, we would just see more suburban sprawl happening across the country. And we're still seeing that piece, but we're also seeing that revitalization of urban centers as well.
1: So uh, after we had lunch the other day, I went home and I found this St. Louis American article that you had written, I think several years ago. So this is an article about you being 18 to 21, somewhere in there and talking about losing a member of your community. Talk a little bit about that article, because that was, man, that was really something.
0: Yeah, man. So, um, you know, one of my slogans is I wasn't always a social worker, but I also think that, you know, as young adults, that that's what we're meant to do. You know, this is probably why I hate cancel culture. Right. Because as young adults, as teenagers and and emerging adults, we're supposed to make mistakes. We're supposed to go out here and test the limits and see, um, you know, what's the right niche for us. Um, Unfortunately, though, in certain situations where your basic needs aren't met, you probably they push it a little too far. So, um, yeah, I I had a group of friends uh, uh, that i was running with um involved in some pretty dangerous situations um like what typical typical uh, things so uh, drug trafficking um uh, gang activity um uh, potential acts of violence um i've never seen any myself but you know rumors so there, whenever there's smoke there's fire of course so yeah i uh I, I i had some i had some experiences you know i don't like to say um, I, I guess some people would consider those to be traumatic experiences, um, and and that had to do with you know me trying to find my place in the world. You know, I, I've had as we talked about, you know, the the spectrum, the the the, the lived experience being on a spectrum. I've been everywhere from the, and I say this uh, this is one of my slogans. I can I've been everywhere from the um, the clubhouse uh, all the way down to the barbecue and the in the projects, right? So um, and and that was probably. one of my lows as I was trying to figure out where I was at making some bad decisions as a young man um, not ready for the responsibility when it was time to go to college things of that nature Uh, end up linking in with some of the wrong crowds um, because at that point they were they were Making accomplishments that I thought was due due to the financial gains that they were getting that I thought meant that they were successful, but again I'm I'm 18 years old and I don't have a full developed brain so I can't I don't, I'm not looking at the risk versus reward, so um, I end up losing a good friend to gun violence behind that. And um, it just switched my gears. You know, one of my, and actually his brother, we were sitting there the night, the evening that, that he was killed and his brother looked and said, you know, there's only two options left for us and there's death or jail. And I'm like, dude, you're 19, I'm 18. Like we have other options than that. And I just, I left everything along and I literally went and rolled back to school the next day. When uh you had experienced
1: that gun violence, was it a total shock? Had you known other people? Was this a random
0: thing? No, i I had known other people. I'd known other people in my family, known other people in the community. This is probably just the one at the current time that was the most closest to me. Man, let's see this
1: is wild because I when I was a kid, I, like uh I definitely wanted to hang out with the kids that smoke cigarettes. I definitely wanted to be around the you know, the kids that uh They work construction so they could have a nice car and then we could also drink or we could do whatever. Like, you know, I think that any any extroverted guy has that like pull and it's a little bit like I could be cool. But like the biggest danger we ran into was uh, getting pulled over by a cop for a DUI or something like that or uh, somebody getting into like a major car accident. Right. Like that's how people died where I was from. To, to imagine that somebody would have malice in their heart enough to go kill another human being that I know is like really hard for me to wrap my mind around and to have that to be a reality. Of the world that you grow up in, it seems like this stuff of fantasy, no different than me watching stuff come out of Buckingham Palace. Like it's that far away from me.
0: No, definitely. And so, if you really want to lean in let's lean into that even more, right? So, what would make somebody want to kill another person, right? Because like, if if you were to get caught, the punishment is that you lose your life. In the state of Missouri, the minimum punishment for for a homicide is life without the possibility of parole. You have lost your life. You will, of course, you'll be in the system. You'll be in jail, but you have no freedoms whatsoever. You'll be behind bars the day that you die so at what point does it take and this is actually something i talk with some of our older our older kids that we deal with our young adults in our in our program so what is it what is what is worth taking another life you know, and and at the end of the day, there is nothing. But so then, what what brings you to the point of wanting to do so? And it's a state of desperation. And so let's go back to looking at kids as, as young people. So we talked about adults and what it takes when you're picking what community or what neighbor you're going to stay in. But young people who don't have that option um, because they have to follow whoever whoever has the whoever is responsible for their well-being. And if their basic needs are getting met, eventually you get tired of being the victim and you take it into your own hands. And so now so now it becomes, um, I think, me and you've had this kind conversation before, you know, it be, it becomes looking at the structure of um of obedience and law, right? And it's like, okay, yeah, it's against it's it's illegal for me to take another life. How however is it is it okay for me to go on starving when there's no options for me to eat? Is it okay for me to live in unhabitable situations when I know there is if I just had an additional $500 a month and something that minuscule, like five literally will make a break someone's life and likelihood and them being able to see their basic needs get met. And so, you know, that's one of the things that I've always, you know, said, and I've always said this, I'll be the sacrificial lamb. I will figure out a way for you to get that additional money, that additional resource, so you do not have to make those those same decisions, so you can change the way that you think, so you can focus on your future and not the present where you're not getting your basic needs met. Yeah. I, before
1: I went to Kenya my, uh, for the Peace Corps, my dad you know, pulled me aside and he's like, now, Vance, the biggest difference between you and the people that you're going to be with, and he's like, you won't really understand this until much later, is that they don't know anyone that knows anyone that can help them. And my dad was making reference to the fact that I, I was like, I've been poor. I've had like ten dollars in my account before and not been able to buy or only buying ramen noodles or barely able to pay my rent or whatever and my dad was like yeah but at the end of the day if something really did happen there are people that would come through for you but if you're living in an existence where you don't even know anyone that can help you out and i don't know if the same is true for kenya as the people you're talking about but it does frame shift what desperation feels like because i was always like
0: all right well if i really can't eat i've really i've really got other options is that what you're talking about no definitely and a lot of people don't have other options a lot of people are in that same situation and it's sad but it's real i think this is really hard for people to wrap their minds around okay well like i said i'm a research scholar so let's throw some statistics at it right so let's look at let's look at syria syria has no has no controlling government right now and it's a free fall right so, let's North North City of St. Louis has an infant mortality rate 1.2% lower than the ungoverned country of Syria. Oh my god. Exactly. So you cannot tell me that these people aren't in desperate situations if if we if if we in the in the greatest country in the world, in the richest country in the world, have issues like that happening right in the heart of our city.
1: Yeah, infant mortality is one of those things that like everybody can get their their hearts around that one that that's like you're talking about a mother that's incredibly vulnerable you're talking about a baby that is nothing but potential right and to lose a child at the rate of what's going on in Syria seems crazy so what's going on there why does that happen
0: I mean, it's a few things. Again, we're going back to basic needs being met. We're going back to, we can look at every public health disparity across the board and it'll and it, you can check a box in certain situations. And it's not just North City because, you know, there's there's plenty of, because again, St. Louis is a very segregated city. So North City by itself is somewhere in 90th percentile for African-Americans. However, um, outside of race, uh, you know, Bayless hits just as many of the public health disparities as, as, as North City does, which is a prominent, you know, uh, white, South city, South, South County suburb. So at the end, at the end of the day, it's not necessarily just a race thing, but what is going on is like a lack of education, lack of basic needs, uh, lack of access to health care. Um, you know, lack lack of um, quality quality jobs for these mothers, um, and then also also again you're looking at the trajectory from previous generations, um, not having the ability to help. Like you said, not having access to to health care. I mean, excuse me, to um, to uh, assistance in, in for child care. Um, not having um, not having that that extra support that you'll need. A lot of these, a lot of times, you know, these mothers go out and they say they ask them in the, in the the also the other piece is shame. I remember talking to a nurse about this and she, you know, they asked, "Hey, do you plan on breastfeeding?" The mother was like, "Yeah, she had never even looked at it. knew how to do it was just holding the baby thinking it would latch on." That's not how it works. Um, a lot of the deaths have to do with have to do with CID like so these children these Mothers aren't educated, the society isn't educated, and there's no additional help or resources to bring to them so they can actually see get these things met to, to put a barrier in place so we don't see something like that happening. And I put the infant mortality piece on there because who wants to see babies die? Like at the end of the day, if you can hear that statistic and walk away, I'm gonna start questioning your own personal morals.
1: Yeah, so uh, part of my job in Kenya was uh, that I was at a neonatal clinic. So I watched all these pregnant mamas come in and a big thing of what I saw, so these people were terribly impoverished, right? You're talking about people living on dirt floors, no electricity, you know, running water out of cisterns, maybe they have it. Um, But what they had that uh, doesn't exist now Is this like deep um, interconnected community, right? So if you were a mama and you just had a baby, you went out and worked maybe a week after you had that baby. But you're also there with grandmas, great grandmas, little girls. All these people are taking care of the kids. You've watched kids grow up your whole life. You've seen that breastfeeding going on. American culture, whether you're talking about black or white or poor or rich or anything, it just doesn't. It's just not. It's not comprised that way.
0: No, nah, I mean it's it's all, and unfortunately. I, I say this I say this as a as a real estate investor, but unfortunately it ends up being all about the money piece. Right. Uh, early childhood health care is, is the most expensive education that you'll ever pay for. You know, that, that zero, that zero to kindergarten age. So there's zero to four, maybe three or four or five is the most expensive health, is the most expensive education that any parent will pay for.
1: I mean, I'm going through this right now and you got to have like two year waiting periods to yeah. get into some of these places. And they're charging like two thousand dollars a month or something like that.
0: it's like it's just as expensive as Ivy League and it's a harder it's a harder you know uh, uh, emissions uh process like it's really ridiculous so you know it's all based off of the capitalist mindset which is fine I'm definitely I will tell people all the time people always ask you know or, am I more conservative a liberal Democrat or Republican I just tell them I'm a capitalist like so at the end of the day I, I totally get that piece you know it's, but it's a money grab and that's also the other part too, of it you know we look at mass media and everybody says you know this is what we're supposed to strive to be at, but that is once you have the ability and the surplus that you can strive to get all the glitz and the glamour, the golden jewelries, or the you know the the nice the nicer homes and things like that. But the first piece is or are you living in a safe, habitable environment? Like, is there is there water leaking through your roof in the rains? Then let's focus on fixing that before we focus on getting a new car. Um, if you have, and you know, it's more about being appreciative of what we have. I think in all honesty, most of society is being lied to through mass media because it, it's gonna be, it's a su- supply and demand. So if if we could create the demand, we then we, we produce a supply so we can get rich off of it.
1: Yeah, and I mean, so I would go and say, uh I would my personal belief is a lot of the reason that the childcare is as expensive as it is as is, is, is because government regulation makes it so you have so many hoops to come through. Like I was talking with this person that was like, if I'm gonna run a daycare, I have to have a master's degree at this point if I'm going to run the daycare. And then I can only hire, you know, so many people without a college degree, and then the rest of the people have to have this special education and this special certification. And a lot of that came about As uh, we started saying, well, we want more safety, we want to make sure that this accident that happened here, this bad thing that happened here can't ever happen. So let's create a rule. And every rule you put in place is now going to amortize the cost of that rule across everybody. And then you start having all the places that used to do it, the churches and the community groups say it's too expensive, we're not we're not able to make money or we're not able to find people that can pay it around this neighborhood.
0: No, definitely. And I think one of the other, one of the other components of it is um, not only just the the government regulations, um, but, but also you know, looking at this piece, we're still handing our kids off to a company, essentially, right? And the education system is definitely, definitely ran like a company. So, um, in doing so, you know, if, what parents are going to check for is, yeah, I'm willing to, I can, if I can afford to pay you this $1,400 a month for early childhood care, that's fine. But I want to see, I want to see the procedures put in place to make sure that my child is protected throughout throughout the tenure while they're here. And the best way to do this is, you know, here's our handbook with all our rules and regulations to make sure that if anything happens your your child is number one priority well hogwash you got you're seeing anywhere from 60 to 300 kids in the early childhood center like there's and there's and you're staffed by 20 people accidents are going to happen you know this kids fall kids get hurt but you know as soon as that happens now it's going to be just the pointing of the finger game and so now we're looking at liability and insurance and now that is an increased cost and god forbid somebody gets sued tuition goes up for everybody
1: yeah So uh, you were talking about COVID in your neighborhood. What is uh, what's going on with uh, vaccines and people like following mask mandates where you're
0: at? I mean, so the mask mandate is is not a big deal. Uh, I think most people are falling either within that or the social distancing piece. You know, I even seen neighbors, um, you know, they make sure they stay within, you know, con- or at least the one concrete plot, which is a good, you know, three feet away on top of the distance that they are on there. So that people are staying there six feet or better away, um, masked up inside of inside of stores um, is not a problem. Uh, I've seen that for the most part. I haven't seen I haven't seen any. Uh, any Karens or, or get kicked out of any places for any reasons. Do you, where you go, everybody's wearing masks. For the most part, yeah.
1: Man, where I go maybe 40 no, percent of wearing masks
0: i mean we but and well i'm gonna be honest again on this piece you know it's not like we have a bunch of grocery stores and and uh and, you know <laughs> and, and patron places in our community you know Fair most enough. things are inside the community so um vaccination you know i treat that almost especially right now when it be a sensitive topic i treat that almost as of uh you know like like politics, religion, and finances, you know, I kind of leave that along on a personal basis. But if people open up and talk to me about it, I would say just based off of my conversation, um, I, it's probably about a 50-50, you know. Um, and what's actually surprising is I get more elders that say that they've been vaccinated than, you know, your working your working age or your young people who are actually qualified to be vaccinated.
1: It's uh, I think you're exactly right about it being the same thing as as religion and politics. And maybe it's the ultimate religion and politics put together, because at the end of the day, it is faith. Right. You yeah. have faith that this that this thing you're putting into your arm is this thing. And it also opens up doors and it lets people, um, you know, OK, if you've done it and you're willing to prove it to other people, now you get access to all of the community. What do you think over the long term? the community you're in with the 50% that aren't uh, taking it is this a permanent thing they're not taking it period or is it a uh we'll wait and see what do you how do you see this playing out
0: uh so this is strictly off assumption and opinion so it's not factual but I will definitely I will say that uh based off of the people that I've talked to in my community and other communities if they haven't gotten vaccinated they probably won't um, you know at this point you know the, even even more you know right now what we're seeing is lotteries and incentives to get vaccinated that just draws more red flags for people. Yeah it's I was like, going to say doesn't that sound yeah. I, I think that's like I, oh yeah. yeah like really though because like, I, I mean I had I, I had a neighbor tell me just recently it was like nobody's ever given me anything and all of a sudden you want to give me fifty dollars just to get a shot and it's like nah like I don't trust it so you know it be it becomes it becomes you know those type those type of conversations and I just let them you know if they want to open up about it I don't even talk about my status with people um, just because I don't want to get into that conversation uh so i leave it alone but you know if people want to open up to me about it that's totally fine i i'll i just do the yeah not nah thing okay but at the end of the day and of course everybody either advocates for not getting it or getting it depending on what choice they made but yeah i i, I again i i i thought it was kind of um uh lack of better words i i, I thought it i thought it was uh, Thought it was kind of questionable too when people start you trying to incentivize things to an untrusty group, right? It's like we already don't trust you as a as a collective group. Like well, now you want to give me money, thinking that you could buy me into getting vaccinated. Like like I would raise the eyebrow too if I felt if I was coming from that perspective. When you
1: say like the, they don't they already don't trust you know the the powers that be or the government. Tell me a little bit about that.
0: I mean, so I think looking at going back to what we started off when we we're talking about me and Ben working into in this blighted area around community development, um, you know, that's that's not by mistake. It's by design. You know, we we're working in a community just north of Del Mar and in that community. Um, you know. So
1: for people that don't know, the Del Mar divide is kind of where they say it's uh, like. The poverty impoverished line is north of that, and south of that is where you have the Wash U's and the sloughs and the like, the universities and the hospital systems and everything. And so, if you go north of Del Mar, that's just kind of like a, a, you know, I don't, I wouldn't compare it to Compton, but something you know you're going you're going north somewhere
0: actually i would compare it to compton actually if you look at the housing market i know the cost of living living is significantly cheaper in st louis than it is in la um but you know uh so if you if you go if you go north of del mar household median income and you, I don't quote me on the new census, but last census that came out, household median income was $70,000. You cross over Delmar, south of Delmar, household in, median income is like 180000 right? So it's more than double uh, that piece. You know, the, the, the price of your house uh, nor, uh, north of Delmar is around $60,000. The price of a home south of Delmar is around 350000 So, you know, those those statistics by itself started to raise flags. And so then you start looking, okay, well, um, going back to it, well, people People's needs aren't going to be met, and anybody who's opened up a business, whether it's a franchise, whether it's just your mom and pop shop, if you start looking, if you start doing a, a market a market analyst report and saying, okay, well, where, where I'm going to put my brick and mortar business at, and you look at something like that, it's like. Why would I put it over here? I'm gonna be in the red for the next 30 years where I could actually see a profit in three to five years if I just go down the street a quarter mile. And I understand it from a business perspective, but we're forgetting about a huge population of people in the process and this is why one of the narratives that you know me and Ben and the group that we work with always talk about is the disinvestment that's happened over decades. And so even if you if you go from one side of Delmar to the next, the housing structures don't change. What changes is, what changes the the work that's been been able to be put in because of the surplus of capital in one confined area compared to the next. So we have just as just as many beautiful historic homes built in the same era.
1: Oh yeah, the neighborhood you guys are in. I mean, Fountain Park is like gorgeous right like it's it's like you you wouldn't no one in the united states right now is building neighborhoods like no. that one
0: i mean and even more specifically that's the only neighborhood in the city like that one so we are, we have the only neighborhood with a residential oval park in the middle of our neighborhood now of course other neighborhoods have parks but to have that oval in the middle of it we're the only one we have a fountain that's that's over 100 years old um in the middle of that park uh
1: and so I kind of hijacked what you were saying before to clarify Delmar, but tell me about the the concerns that people have about the government.
0: Well, I mean, at the end of the day, it goes back to the, that whole disinvestment, right? And as you talked about, we talked about education, you talk about regulations. Well, there's housing regulations, um, just like anything else. And so in doing so, you know, like I said, just just actually in our neighborhood, you know, there was a. One of the biggest housing regulations uh, back in the day was redlining, and um, Fountain Park at Lewis Place, more specifically Lewis Place, was uh, when that conservation was lifted. Lifted was the first community that um, that you saw that flood of, of prominent African Americans. So that was in 1949. Uh, the Shelley family. Um, went to and went all the way up to the federal federal supreme court had the case that lifted that that housing conservation that says that African Americans could live in their neighborhood. Within 20 years, it was it was the mecca of upper middle class. It was a, plenty of black lawyers and doctors that lived in these. Communities live in these communities. Well, then other regulations came around, and so you start seeing disinvestment into these communities um, around such. And so you start seeing start seeing a surplus of homes um, and investment on south of Del Mar and almost forgotten about north of Del Mar. And I hate to, because I don't like to pull the race card, it's not my thing, um, but at some point you have to say, well, what was the only difference in this play? Um, you know, like I said, they're doctors and lawyers. These are prominent positions still to this day, you know, in certain cultures, if you're not a doctor or a lawyer, you're a failure. So, if you are, if you have that prominent of a profession, and you're starting to see regulations put in place that that prohibit you to succeed on a state level per laws or federal level per laws, then what else? What else can we attribute to it? And that, and I, I will leave that out for a question for your listeners and other people to push back on, because I will look up for educational piece.
1: And so, what what time period was this going on in that you're? Just grabbing. The forties. The forties. So pr- yeah. before a Pruitt-Igo comes in.
0: Yeah, definitely. And Pruitt-Igo by Pru- Pruitt-Igo was was segregated. I don't know if most people know that, but those Pruitt and Igo were two separate buildings. Pruitt was black. Igo was white. No kidding. Yeah, most people don't know that. I didn't know that. I
1: don't. I actually really know almost nothing about Pruitt-Igo other than it was a disaster everything they tried to do, like forward thinking, like from the not being able to change the light bulbs out to, you know, didn't work. Uh, but what is your take on Pruitt-Igo?
0: I think Pruitt-Igo was the beginning of new regulations around housing and more more specifically, not just housing, but social services to say, if you if you need said services, here's the criteria that, is, that you need to meet. And we still see that today. And for instance, um, housing authority and housing structures, right? Excuse me. Um, most people are not going to get uh, like a housing, a housing voucher from the housing authority if it's a two family, if it's a, 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 two, a two, two parent family. There we go. Two parent family, two head of household family. So if you have two incomes coming in, uh, they're not going to get a housing voucher. Um, so so that is a policy that started in Puerto And that's a prime example of what we're going to continue to see across the board um, with with regulations. You know, so you're going to it goes back people. You do a case study, see what works, see what doesn't work, see what the extreme need is. And, you know, we have to cap it somewhere because. Everybody, we can't just hand out free. This isn't a social. You know, it's not a socialist society. We're not communists, so we got. We have to draw the line somewhere on what we're willing to help with.
1: Yeah, and a bureaucracy knows no nuance, right? Exactly. It's, it's got It's we're putting in a rule. I, to me, when I look at the statistics, like just in the latest census, right, where we now have forty percent or something like that of all children are born um, out of you know with to a single parent, but in the black community, it's something like. Seventy percent. Yeah,
0: it's pretty high. I know it's more than fifty.
1: I mean, like, to me, having just raised, you know, I've got a one-year-old right now, right? Like, I cannot imagine raising a child by yourself, but then on top of that, having all the challenges of, you know, having to ride the bus to go to the grocery store, making an income that's, you know, twelve or thirteen dollars an hour. To me, it is inevitable that the outcomes of that w- will be bad
0: no definitely and I I think like so this goes back to why we need communities to be self-sustaining and have its own ecosystems and I actually think that COVID and new technology has brought us back to those old terms right so you talk about when you're talking about making America great it's because that people were able to like we we also have the analogy of you know pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps well inside of a community you have all the you have access to all of those things it's when you feel like you have to go outside the community to get those things met. People just need that. People just need the educational aspects and someone to come and help them put it in place. And once you get those wheels turning, it becomes an effect, right? So let's look at, we can look at other statistics too. In other communities, you know, the dollar transfers for months on end, right? In the Jewish community, I think it's something somewhere around like three years, which is the longest. Meaning design.
1: that if you go spend a, a dollar at a flower shop in the Jewish community, then that flower shop owner goes and spends it at the grocery, grocery store, store and then he goes and spends it at the, you know, the whatever, buys some address for his wife and then just Definitely. keeps going around.
0: Definitely. And if you look at, and so I'm, I use the Jewish community because we can look at uh, parts of St. Louis, like if you look at U City where the synagogue is, that you know, that they, they they circulate that business inside of that community for a very long time. I mean, you know, like I say, that that dollar stays in there on average three years. Well, in the African African American community, again, very much segregated here in St. Louis City, um, that dollar stays in in circulation in about forty eight seconds because there aren't business owners that are able to put that in place. Now we have plenty of you know one of the cool terms that's going around a lot right now is economic development, and people are really trying to ramp it up and and help help minorities, black and brown people, get access to um, either financial financial backing, loans, and and get them get them brick and mortars up and running in these communities to start creating these ecosystems. But it has to be—it has to be an all hands on deck from a three-tier approach, right? We have to we talk. You know, you brought up my own personal story about gun violence. We have to do something about public safety for, first and foremost. Um, but I—I I don't think. I, but my thoughts behind it is, if you focus on the housing. And get people quality housing because everybody doesn't want to be a homeowner. You know, I know that's the old way to get to 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 get to wealth is to home, is home ownership. But everybody doesn't want that. That comes with a lot of responsibility that I just don't think that some people in our generation are made for nowadays. Um, but then the next piece is making sure people's basic needs are met with resources. And once you do that, now people can start getting their wheels turning. What is it you actually want to do? And is there something that we could do right here in this community to make it to to make it feasible and sustainable inside? Of this ecosystem, um, I, I, one of my mentors told me one thing that he believes that every community needs is a hub. You know, we need that hub so we can have these hard conversations, and then start these think tanks and draw that attention. You know, um, I say this. I say this as coming in a very coming from a very low income community you know i've been privileged enough to own a few rental properties my neighbor owns a few rental properties but no one would even believe that there are real estate developers and investors right inside of this community Um, but if we were to concentrate that in our community instead of outside communities we could really start to have that transitional change at one community at a time. I think that some of these institutions have a great approach to it. I think Washu has done a great job in in the Forest Park Southeast neighborhood and how they've created a corridor that meets their basic needs and also drives revenue from outside communities. Plenty of people come on the weekend into there to bring that money back into that community. Um, you're seeing where over 30% of the residents are still in place over a 10-year span of development, um, and just and just the housing stock that they've created. You know, they have that a uh, whole uh, that whole spectrum of home ownership and housing—they have everything from low income, like uh, you know uh, the affordable housing and the the housing voucher play to that medium up to $180,000 homes, up to $300, $400,000 homes, all within a 25, 25, 30 block radius. Um, those are the perfect examples of what needs to happen. Chicago did a great job at Lincoln Park. Um, Cincinnati is doing a great job just just uh, north- east of their downtown. Um, Detroit, even though they've had their issues, is starting to see a huge turnaround with their housing stock um, And those. And it's all due because they're hitting it from all the approaches, and they're getting that group of people corralled together with the same agenda. And-
1: you had a, a, a fascinating turn of phrase when we met for lunch that uh, really blew my mind. We were talking about the value of churches in communities. And that's you know your communities or my communities. When I grew up, like that was the center of everything. But those have gone away and have been replaced by what you call the nonprofit industrial complex. Talk about that for a little bit.
0: Oh, definitely. So, I mean, you know, if, if you go back to it, and this is kind of and this is a perfect transition because, um, you know, the, those hubs used to be the churches, right? Um, the churches used to be where everybody went to go get their basic needs met. Also, you know, if you talk about – if you're talking about uh, – pre the civil rights movement this is where this is where your your black engineer who couldn't be who couldn't get a job at a at a engineering company would be a um would 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 be an engineer for the church, or have a have a prominent position in the church, whether it be a deacon or a trustee on the board. Um, but on just regular nine to five, may have been a bus driver. Um, so so this is a this is the perfect that's a perfect example of what a community hub would have been. So these churches used to have used to have the opportunity. We still have a couple. Um, you know, I, I like to you know shout out to uh, Friendly Temple Baptist Church here in St. Louis. I think they're doing a great job over in the in the Martin Luther King corridor um where they they have hey they have really started to meet a lot of those basic needs they have all they have everything but a market and i'm pretty sure knowing their pastor mike jones he's probably in the process of putting a grocery store up there pretty soon so um outside of that though like that is where those hubs started and the idea from there somewhere along the lines though um churches no longer churches and I, I can't speak to why but i can say that churches no longer started to uh started we're meeting the basic needs of the people and i don't know if that because we started seeing a number of churches grow and congregations split to smaller because again it's about having that collective of people
1: yeah you can only have about 130 families in a in a church and once it gets above that then you've got separate churches inside of that it's it's not stable much beyond 130
0: and so that's where i go back to the leadership right you know true good leaders good leaders are able to corral those different churches and, and get people's you know that bureaucracy get people's needs met you know uh, i just had a conversation with um one of the stakeholders me and ben works close closely with and he, he brought up an old quote i forgot it but well, who said it but you know it's uh in a good negotiation um nobody comes out happy right you know everybody has to everybody has to give up something in order to get the, get what they get a piece of what they want So they collectively Can come together So nobody's going to Ever get 100% Of what we want But that is what Compromise is for um, But I think in, in doing so If people are willing To stick it out For the long haul You're able to see so These churches These churches Used to be able to do so You know I think I hear about churches Even my the family church That my family goes to Used to have 4,000 members in there Right That blows my mind today I hear about it In other, in other settings um, But most of the times Those are the ones I see on TV And I don't necessarily see them actually doing the the, the more concrete work on the ground floor and also those are churches where we have people traveling from different communities all over uh, the the black church used to be in black communities as a central hub um, and they bonded together around specific needs so you know for instance I'll bring up uh, the uh, Alabama boys um, excuse me the Birmingham bus boycott um, where were pastors from all the through the south and Midwest, came together, you know we see Martin Luther King as the face behind it, but there was plenty of pastors and, and ministers, black ministers that came behind together to rally that up. Um, and with those so with those those uh, domestic carpools that they were having around the bus boycott, uh, they literally almost shut down. The transit system for the whole state of Alabama um, And it takes that It's that type of influence that the black Church used to have in black communities um, And band together Where pastors were taking people From and for like for from work For their regular nine to fives During the week um, that We don't necessarily see that type of On the ground leadership and it goes back to You know what type of leader do we want to see Do we want to see the the floor general that's leading, the, that's leading their soldiers in the battle Or do we want to see the dictators from the battle balcony, there's this demanding orders, and I I just can't get with the latter. Um,
1: yeah, I think that, uh, that one of the things that churches did was help people develop their leadership skills, because within every single church, whether you're talking about you know, St. Luke's Catholic Church in Eureka, Illinois, or the Friendly Baptist Church, like, that minister isn't doing things alone right mm-hmm. they maybe seem like they're on top and they're the ones that like have the final say but they got the women's group they've got the bible study they've got church uh, like the Sunday school they've got all these different you know the choir mm-hmm. all of these little hierarchies where people are meeting they're seeing each other they're get, checking in on one another they're probably gossiping about each other which has some social like goodness to it right like if, if you are a little bit concerned about what your uh, parishioners are going to think of you it might keep you a little bit more on the straight and narrow and then you see young people getting to watch how do you actually get along with a group of people when it's not possible for you to be like i don't like them so you know i'm gonna go yell and scream in their face because you got to see them next week and the week after that and for years and years and years because you don't choose who else shows up to church and all of that when when church attendance starts falling away your community or mine then you lose things that we don't even have names for because they were so deeply embedded into our culture. It goes hundreds of years, thousands of years back.
0: No, definitely. And so, and you know, just outside of the church, because I I want to lean back into the nonprofit piece, right? So the 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 church has definitely created that that bonding that you had to do. And I agree with you on that part. And so when we look at these these new nonprofits, these these mega nonprofits. Um, it's all for salary. In the church, nobody got a check. Now you got you received Ah, a, there were some ministers that make
1: money. Oh, well, like definitely, pe- People make money in those no, situations. Well,
0: well, I'm I'm thinking about I'm thinking about the era of the civil rights movement. I remember going through a course and I was reading a book and and uh, Fannie Lou Hammer said this out of Mississippi, right? It wasn't the fact that we got money to do this, but yeah, we would get we would get food donations or you know, Miss Johnson would cook dinner for the whole congregation type deal and the ones who were doing the work you know she would make sack lunches throughout the week so that that's e that so of course it equated to to fi, to finances but we didn't have to come out there was different incentives besides just here's some here's an actual fiscal check to walk away right
1: with. And, and and you weren't measuring to well, let's quantitatively measure how well exactly. the success was it was hey did the parishioner get what they needed and now it's did we meet the metrics that we need in order to be For able to get grant. more grant? Yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> and
0: so, and that's and that's where I think the biggest difference came came into play was did we did we make an impact? Did we solve the problem? And when we solve these problems, the incentive comes along, right? And so that's this is this goes back to the saying, you know, we I keep hearing this over and over again, you know, do what you love, you never work a day. Well, because you're never looking at the you're never looking at the the financial uh, reward that you're getting out of it. You, as you keep working, you just like you're just meeting the needs uh, or your responsibilities and like I'm able to meet my basic needs in life as well but on that nonprofit piece the biggest reward is how much grant money did we receive this year you know I, we're going for about three grants right now just currently that's doing next week and all of them was like what's your financial report what's your financial report I understand where it's coming from this is the, the life that we live in nowadays but at the same time it's it's also like ask me about the ask me about the problems that we solve ask me about the data and the impact that we've made and see and fund those guys and that's what i really like to do i like to see the small guys get a shot because the big guys have forgotten the reason why we're at the table in the first place sometimes well i i see
1: that i mean you know so you um i had a chance to see the clinton global initiative right Mm -hmm. so the way that they were dispensing money I mean, they had hundreds of millions of dollars and they were they you, we could go way into that. But the biggest thing that I noticed is that they were like, we're gonna change the KPIs, the the key performance indicators because we want them to be x and y and z, and this is our great addition. And so uh, people were saying, okay, but we're gonna need to have like four or five people just to spend all day long uh, creating the reports that allow us to be able to fulfill your thing. And they're like, "Well, just add it into the grant and then you can add four more people. And then you've got more people you're employing. And then look at how this works. So when I heard your term, the nonprofit industrial complex, I was like, Oh my God, that's, that is the name for what's going on here. There is no, it, you, you don't benefit by solving the problem and reducing the size of the staff, like that's failure, right? If if the if a nonprofit lowers how many people are working on their staff the next year, that's not a good thing. That's not like the engineer that didn't have a job and became a deacon for a little while. Mm-hmm. You don't want him necessarily to only be a deacon. You'd love to see him get his engineering job and move on and shrink the staff, and because it's it's a part of a fabric as opposed to a quantitative industry
0: no definitely right and that's and that's what that's what we're falling back in that's what we need to fall back into is to that space right now what we keep seeing is is that that the fiscal responsibility on the nonprofits to say hey here's what we here's what we think we can hit here's how much we can we can here's how how many problems we can solve with just this amount of money and it's like "Mm, okay cool i hear what you're saying but at the end at the end of the day like how are you justifying that? And, I, and as you said it right now, you know, I'm thinking my data guy is a hundred dollars an hour. But if I don't have him, like I don't have any grants to, to go out here and deliver these services, um, where that is that shouldn't be the case, and that is not where where we should be alluding to moving forward. Along along with you know meeting meeting the basic needs and serving the people that actually need these services that whatever whoever and whatever we're providing. Um, and so when you start looking at when you start looking at people that just are that grant language up. Um, my fear is, and I get this all the time. I will. I love diving into people's grant proposals if I ever get a, ch- a, a, a chance to look at them, or their 990s. I'll jump on there and see that too, because I really. Because the next thing is, I'll read something they they applied for, and I want to call and see if they actually do this work. I want to see like how how far in depth can I push them to say yes, this is what we do, this is what we allude to, type deal, or was it just a money grab? Um, and this is where uh, that nonprofit industrial complex really falls into play because it starts to become more of, again, I think I said this earlier, a band-aid on a bullet wound. Um, let's, let's address this problem, but we're going to say we can only effectively hit 30%. Well, based off the Department of Social Services, 30% means that you're effective and we're gonna fund you double next year. Um and not to reach 60%, but so you can spread that arm out and saying, hey, we saw instead of saying, you know, we saw a thousand clients and three hundred were successful, we can say we saw two thousand clients and six hundred were successful instead of deep diving into that that thousand clients. And so, and so that is kind of that, that complex, right? Just like any other company, we, we, we hit a certain benchmark and we open up a new store and we just continue this cycle.
1: Well, and you were saying before we turn the cameras on about like the work that you actually are doing, like the qualitative work for somebody that runs a nonprofit like yours is, a kid gets in a fight at school, the school's ready to expel him, and your role is to come in and say like, all right, let's, let's figure out what's going on here.
0: Yeah, so you know it's it's about assessing the assessing the situation in the whole environment and not just that one problem, right? Um, you know, one one my my business partner she says all the time is not it's not what happened, but what happened to you, right? And so that's one of the things I always lead into because usually by the time I've gotten a the kid, they've seen the principal, they got they've seen the teacher, they've had these referrals. So the first thing I always ask them is not what did you do, um, not what happened. So what happened to you? and just that by itself you will see the tension be relieved in a young person but in doing so again like i said you know i'm all about the quantitative stuff you know we have to have that piece that data mark i love to see that point i love to see that you know our success rate is 72% compared to the national average being 30 so but but what i what i care even more about is that interpersonal connection with these young people so they actually see someone that gets it and has removed the removed the imagery of what success has looked like because the status quo has said this is what success is supposed to be, and has mo- now looked at them as an individual person with their with rights, with needs that need, need to be met, with a um, a premise that of of coming from a premise of understanding and not trying, not trying to label and say, okay, well, here's the issue, here's the problem, here's how we're going to fix it. Because everything is a, a unique situation. Nothing's cookie cutter. You know, I always say that's one of the best things about my job is no two days are alike, which means that I always have to go in, you know, I can't go in there with blinders. Everything, every new situation, all cards have to be back on the table because what what worked for work for Johnny is not going to work for Billy. And until we start recognizing, and not only just in in social emotional Emotional learning but in the educational system this is where we start to see kids be called failures you know it's funny I, I just saw a, a quote earlier says the A students work for the B students the B students work for the C students the the D students the D students run the company and the F students are the board members because you know it's it's about the creative mindset and the creative thinking and whenever you're able to be successful outside of what the status quo tells you success is supposed to look like and you can still do what the status quo does on top of it you know you're gonna go you're you're gonna go light years past the you're a common man yeah there's something to
1: be said for the the a student being the golden child right they figured out how do I mimic what other people want me to do so that I can get this A? And whether or not F students are on the on the board, I, you know, I don't know for sure. But I know the people that weren't so focused on making the teacher happy are often way, way more creative and, and coming up with solutions to solve the problem that don't necessarily have to be with the way you've done it before.
0: No, definitely. You know, again, my dad was an educator um, and a principal for Almost forty years, and one of the things he always told me, he said, Chauncey, you know, uh, I wasn't the best student, right? I was a good, I was a good C student, right? And so, um, what, what my dad told me, he said, Chauncey, you know, you have you have all the charisma in the world, and he said, you know, charisma takes you far, and education takes you far too. So when you have both, that you that that, that you succeed everybody else, um, and that I think that was probably halfway through my high school years where I really started to buckle down. It wasn't the fact that you had to get the education, but it was the discipline that came along with it. And if you had that level of discipline with that charisma, and I hate to say this because I'm not saying this for every A students, I know some pretty charismatic A students, but uh, uh, but the, the ones that are, are the people pleasers that are just trying to fit a box that may not be their authentic self um, are going to have from my experience most of them have lost who their authentic self who they are authentically and never really get that back you know because it's a it's a practice and it's a part of your personality and if you if you bury it long enough you're for, you'll forget it even exists
1: yeah or not have the courage to be able to live it out exactly so um few months ago, we had a mayoral election in St. Louis mm-hmm. and I had uh, the mayoral candidate Kara Spencer on the podcast one time. She's an interesting person. She was talking about all, all the things that were going on and, and making the case for like you know, because for people that don't know, the people in the county, like where I live, don't vote for people, the mayor of, of St. Louis City. But it has a huge impact. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. So you are the first person I'd ever encountered that was like, hey, you should give Tashara Jones a, a different, you know, like a chance. She's got some new ideas. So make the pitch for people that don't know anything at all about Tashara Jones. Why give give her a chance when I think a lot of people in the county were thinking Kara Spencer was the one they wanted to see win.
0: Well, first I have to see. In all honesty, first I have to see why people wanted to, uh, were so eager to see Kara. So you know, I had an opportunity to meet Kara on a walk audit um, about a month ago. I had known some people that have worked with her. One of one of my uh, one of my assistants and partners in crime has always has was working with the progressive caucus was with Kara as a part of and did some consulting work for them. So I've only heard great things about Kara. Um, The the Tashara play. my biggest thing is I'm gonna go back to what I said about you know bringing all the cards on the table. Um, I don't I don't know why people canceled Tashara. Um, Everything that I had heard had been around her dad, um, and I hate to I hate to hold people. Um, yeah, the those. sins
1: of the father shouldn't. shouldn't there we the go. Child. Yeah.
0: yeah. So. So, again, I, I I hate I hate to see that piece of it. Right. So, you know, I had an opportunity to meet with Tashara one on one a couple of times um, and, and talk to her about what her visions were, what she saw, um, everything that she was saying uh, aligned with what, you know, with with what I felt. I think would be a great approach um, around the cancel piece. Nothing that nothing that we had seen in previous administrations. Not only lighters but slaves. Um, I did not see care. I did not see Tashara. You know, uh, uh, dismiss that those workings. Um, if anything, what I saw was was her giving more people more people opportunities than than just the power structures that already existed um so that's where i really was like okay maybe she maybe she does get it in the light that she's willing to have open dialogue and if you're not a part of this fraternity that already exists then you're shut out right um and I say to say that I work with that fraternity on a regular as well. Um, But everybody also knows that I'm all for like shifting, like not necessarily shifting, but throwing a wrench into the power struggle to see how people move. When we get too comfortable in our positions, you know, a lot of times we don't, we don't start, we, we, we don't see the pushback um, or try to come up with new strategies and approaches to how we're going to, how we're, how we're going to fix a, a certain situation, you know, what work even five years ago may not work today. And so when I see someone like Shar come into play, um, and you know, her dialogue may make may make make people uneasy around whatever she's saying. I like those type of things. I think that I think that draws people to start thinking creatively and get the wheels turning again. Okay, well how do I approach the situation with this new with with potentially a new power structure in play, a new administration in play. So how how do I shift my thinking to approach this person? And at the end of the day, well, what anybody who knows that those at the top of these power structures is the play always is the same. Like it never changes. So in doing so, um, how now for me, it's going back to some of the metaphors and examples we used earlier. How do we get the bus driver who has an engineering degree to the table to give him an opportunity to see if he works with it? Right. Um, And when you have and when you get again, when you're in the government regulations and they're saying, hey, we want you to give the little guy an option or a chance. Well, that should be coming out. We're going to put up the finances for you to give the little guy a chance. For me, that looks like a win-win situation. So you're saying I don't have to come out of any capital. I potentially can grow my staffing out just by giving somebody who I don't know, don't trust, um, but are willing to build a relationship to to make ease with the with our local elected official? Well, I'm okay with that. Yeah, you know, you were... I, I, I was really just around
1: one sphere of people and so you were the first person to be like, I don't know, man. She's like uh, trying to break up the old boys networks and like that's going to make some people uncomfortable and they're not going to like that and I was like, you know, that's true. In particular, like I've moved to a bunch of different cities and I've like tried to get involved in things and you're like, they don't want me here. Uh, you know, I'm not a part of this. And so there is something to be said for breaking that up. You, you let any one power structure around, hang around for too long. You know, then you start developing um, an inability for things to change at all. So I, I was just glad you brought it up, and I wanted to give you a chance to, to chat about it.
0: No, yeah, and no, I think I think that's exactly it, though. You know, just just a simple fact that more than anything, because it's not I don't think it's gonna break up anything, right? C- certain power structures that have been in place for too long that you won't break it up, but uh, to get people to start rethinking, like or, or start thinking differently in, the, in their approaches and the ways they do things. I mean, you know, let's think about it. We just we talked about your network, you know, your network is your network and um and ideally most people um who don't have a large and extensive network um will see a cap on their network and and i think that uh when somebody comes in and can throw a wrench in the way that people think and not just you know hire the next one up who i know and i can trust but give other people a shot they may exceed the expectations that you have for the person that you want to put in place in the first in the first place. I think that's fun and exciting. I do not like the I like excitement. I like I like to like a challenge. And I think more than anything, if there's a challenge to be done and, and you know, you have the charisma and the skill set, um, you're gonna succeed no matter who's in power. Um, but you know, I don't I don't, I never wanna take the easy ride out. I always go for the underdog.
1: So uh, Chauncey, this has been a really good conversation. If people wanted to learn more about your nonprofit and the work that you guys do, or just kind of to, to find out more, where would they go?
0: Oh yeah, so go to uh, Chaos Inc. That's chaos with a K, K-H-A-O-S, inc. Dot com, dot org. excuse me. So they actually, social worker stands for uh, 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 stands for keep healing and overcoming struggles. So we're a social and emotional learning organization. We also have ANA Inspirations, which is a uh, private therapy company as well so if you need psychotherapy as well come in and see us on that piece as well Um, as well from from the uh, community organization aspect if you want to go to Park Place Housing and Economic Development Um, We are a uh, community development corporation focused north of Del Mar and and right now primarily two communities, Fountain Park and Lewis Place, trying to make sure that people get their needs met and we get this this ecosystem up and running. Who would
1: be a good person to contact that group? Like, who are the types of people you want to see showing up?
0: Oh, man, we want to see see it across the board. Like I said, the more the merrier, right? So I want to see community organizers, activists that get it. I want to see people that can bring in skill sets and resources, uh, definitely develop we're really ramping that up you know we just got a we just got approval um, and we'll see a hundred and uh, well 200 unit apartment going up on Del Mar market rate. Uh, we're looking at a uh, senior living facility with 52 units um, one of the with all new and, and, and new and interesting layout so it's gonna be a lot of um, you know it's gonna be a, a lot of uh, in, Excuse me. Um, amenities that that focus on you know uh, elderly who may have some dementia. So uh, that's going to be kind of fun to see of that piece. Um, you know we just we we just had an application go through with with uh, Rise, a local nonprofit uh, builder, um, to put up some uh, low income housing. So we're, we want to see some more people, some private developers come through and do some redo some of these historical homes we have over in Fountain Park. Uh, we're also doing a, a capital ca- a capital contribution campaign right now. To to rehab that fountain over like i said is 114 years old um it's a beautiful fountain we want to get it back up and running
1: well man i uh i'm rooting for you and uh ben was 100 percent right you're like one of the most interesting conversationalists and i'm i'm just i'm just glad you and Ben cross paths because it seems like you guys are doing good things
0: yeah let, let's see give us a couple more years when we can knock off some of these uh some of these benchmarks but thanks man for having me thanks jauncey appreciate it